Short Stories Podcast is here, a production of adventuresinaudio.net. Welcome, dear friend. I hope you are well and ready for a nice horror story. I'm Robert Crandall. That's what I do on this podcast. The recommended way to listen to this podcast is to get comfortable in a nice, easy chair, or comfy chair, as they're sometimes called, or whatever. Now, turn the lights down low, remove all thoughts from your mind, get rid of everything, don't think about it, and enjoy the story. Oh, I want to thank Erin uh, of Knoxville, Tennessee, for her very kind email. I'm glad you enjoyed the show, Aaron, and thank you so much for that email. And if you like the show, share it with friends. Be sure to check out PoemCast, the other podcast I do. It should be just about anywhere you find podcasts. If you can't find it on platform or the app uh, that you use, let me know and I will submit it to them. Now it is time for the horror word of the day, which is stench, spelled S-T-E-N-C-H, a pungent, noxious odor like that of a decaying or decomposing corpse, causing much dread disgust, and revulsion. I hope you don't experience a stench. Let's move on now to our feature story. A man is offered a coffin, but he doesn't think he needs one. He has no one to bury but himself. I hope you enjoy The Coffin Merchant by Richard Middleton. London, on a November Sunday, inspired Eustace Reynolds with a melancholy too insistent to be ignored and too causeless to be enjoyed. The gray sky overhead between the housetops, the cold wind round every street corner, the sad faces of the men and women on the pavements combined to create an atmosphere of ineloquent misery. Eustace was sensitive to impressions, and in spite of a half-conscious effort to remain a dispassionate spectator of the world's melancholy, He felt the chill of the aimless day creeping over his spirit. Why was there no sun, no warmth, no laughter on the earth? What had become of all the children who keep laughter like a mask on faces of disillusioned men? The wind blew down Southampton Street and chilled Eustace to a shiver that passed away in a shudder of disgust at the somber color of life 
a windy Sunday in London, before the lamps are lit, tempts a man to believe in the nobility of work. At the corner by Charing Cross Telegraph Office, a man thrust a handbell under his eyes, but he shook his head impatiently. The blueness of the fingers that offered him the paper was alone sufficient to make him disinclined to remove his hands from his pocket even for an instant. But the man would not be dismissed so lightly. Excuse me, sir, he said, following him. You have not looked to see what my bills are. Whatever they are, I don't want them. That's where you are wrong, sir, the man said earnestly. You will never find life interesting if you do not lie in wait for the unexpected. As a matter of fact, I believe my bills contain exactly what you do want. Eustace looked at the man with quick curiosity. His clothes were ragged, and the visible parts of his flesh were blue and cold. But his eyes were bright with intelligence, and his speech was that of an educated man. It seemed to Eustace that he was being regarded with a keen expectancy, as though his decision on the trivial point was of real importance. I don't know what you're driving at, he said, but if it will give you any pleasure, I will take one of your bills. Though if you argue with all of your clients as you have with me, it must take you a long time to get rid of them. I only offer them to suitable persons, the man said, folding up one of the handbills while he spoke, and I'm sure you will not regret taking it, and he slipped the paper into Eustace's hand and walked rapidly away. Eustace looked after him curiously for a moment and then opened the paper in his hand. When his eyes comprehended its significance, he gave a low whistle of astonishment. You will soon be wanting a coffin, it read. At 606 Gray's Inn Road, your order will be attended to with civility and dispatch. Call and see us. Eustace swung round quickly to look for the man, but he was out of sight. The wind was growing colder, and the lamps were beginning to shine out in the graying streets. Eustace crumpled the paper into his overcoat pocket and turned homewards. How silly, he said to himself in conscious amusement. The sound of his footsteps on the pavement rang like an echo to his laugh. Eustace was impressionable, but not temperamentally morbid and he was troubled a little by the fact that the gruesomely bizarre handbill continued to recur to his mind. The thing was so manifestly absurd. He told himself with conviction that it was not worth a second thought. But this did not prevent him from thinking of it again and again. What manner of undertaker could hope to obtain business by giving away foolish handbills in the street? Really? The whole thing had the air of a brainless, practical joke. Yet his intellectual fairness forced him to admit that as far as the man who had given him the bill was concerned, brainlessness was out of the question, and joking, improbable. Oh, damn the thing, he said impatiently as he opened the door of his flat. It isn't worth worrying about. I mustn't let the whim of some mad tradesman get on my nerves. 
I've got no one to bury anyhow. Nevertheless, the thing lingered with him all the evening, and when his neighbor the doctor came in for a chat at ten o'clock, Eustace was glad to show him the strange handbill. The doctor, who had experienced the queer magics that are practiced to this day on the west coast of Africa, and who therefore had no nerves, was delighted with so striking an example of British commercial enterprise. Though you mind, he added gravely, smoothing the crumpled paper on his knee, this sort of thing might do a lot of harm if it fell into the hands of a nervous subject. I should be inclined to punch the head of the one who perpetrated it. Have you turned that address up in the post office directory? Eustace shook his head and rose and fetched the flat red book, which makes London an English city. Together they found the Gray's Inn Road and ran their eyes down to number 606. Harding G.J. Coffin Merchant and Undertaker. Not much information there, muttered the doctor. Coffin Merchant's a bit unusual, isn't it? queried Eustace. I suppose he manufactures coffins wholesale for the trade. Still, I didn't know they called themselves that. Anyway, it seems as though the handbill is a genuine piece of downright foolishness. The idiot ought to be stopped advertising in that way. I'll go see him myself tomorrow, said Eustace bluntly. Well, he's given you an invitation, said the doctor. So it's only polite of you to go. I'll drop in here in the evening to hear what he's like. I expect you'll find him as mad as a hatter. Uh, something like that, said Eustace. Or he wouldn't give handbills to people like me. I have no one to bury except myself. No, said the doctor in the hall. I suppose you haven't. Don't let him measure you for a coffin, Reynolds. Eustace laughed. We never know, he said sententiously. Next day was one of those gorgeous blue days of which November gives but few, and Eustace was glad to run out to Wimbledon for a game of golf, or rather two. It was therefore dusk before he made his way to Gray's End Road in search of the unexpected. His attitude towards the errand, despite the doctor's laughter and the prosaic entry in the directory, was a little confused. He could not help reflecting that, after all, the doctor had not seen the man with the little wise eyes, nor could he forget that Mr. G. J. Harding's description of himself as a coffin merchant, to say the least of it, approached the unusual. Yet he felt that it would be intolerable to chop the whole business without finding out what it all meant. On the whole, he would have preferred not to have discovered the riddle at all, but having found it, he could not rest without an answer. Number 606, Gray's End Road, was not like an ordinary undertaker's shop. The window was heavily draped with black cloth, but was otherwise unadorned. There were no letters from grateful mourners, no little model coffins, no photographs of marble memorials. 
Even more surprising was the absence of any name over the shop door, so that the uninformed stranger could not possibly tell what trade was carried on within or who was responsible for the management of the business. This uncommercial modesty did not tend to remove Eustace's doubt as to the sanity of Mr. G. J. Harding, but he opened the shop door, which started a large bell swinging noisily, and stepped over the threshold. The shop was hardly more expressive inside than out. A broad counter ran across it, cutting it in two, and in the partial gloom overhead a naked gas burner whistled a noisy song. Beyond this, the shop contained no furniture whatever, and no stock in trade except a few planks leaning against the wall in one corner. There was a large inkstand on the counter. Eustace waited patiently for a minute or two, and then as no one came, he began stamping on the floor with his foot. This proved efficacious, for soon he heard the sound of footsteps ascending wooden stairs. The door behind the counter opened, and a man came into the shop. He was dressed quite neatly now, and his hands were no longer blue with cold. But Eustace knew at once that it was the man who had given him the handbill. Nevertheless, he looked at Eustace without a sign of recognition. What can I do for you, sir? He asked pleasantly. Eustace laid the handbill on the counter. I want to know about this, he said. It strikes me as being in pretty bad taste, and if a nervous person got a hold of it, it might be dangerous. You think so, sir? Yet our representative, he lingered affectionately on the words, our representative told you, I believe, that the handbill was only distributed to suitable cases. That's where you are wrong said Eustace sharply, for I have no one to bury, except yourself, said the coffin merchant suavely. Eustace looked at him keenly. I don't see, he began, but the coffin merchant interrupted him. You must know, sir, he said, that this is no ordinary undertaker's business. We possess information that enables us to defy competition in our special class of trade. Information? Well, if you prefer it, you may say intuitions. If our representative handed you that advertisement, it was because he knew you would need it. Excuse me, said Eustace. You appear to be sane but your words do not convey to me any reasonable significance. You gave me that foolish advertisement yourself, and now you say that you did so because you knew I would need it. I ask you why. Coffin Merchant shrugged his shoulders. Ours is a sentimental trade, he said. I do not know why dead men want coffins, but they do. For my part, I would wish to be cremated. Dead men? Ah, uh, I was coming to that. You see, Mr. Uh, Reynolds. Uh, thank you. My name is Harding. G.J. Harding. 
You see, Mr. Reynolds, our intuitions are of a very special character, and if we say that you will need a coffin, it is probable that you will need one. You mean to say that I... Precisely. In twenty-four hours or less, Mr. Reynolds, you will need our services. The revelation of the coffin merchant's insanity came to Eustace with a certain relief. For the first time in the interview, he had a sense of the dark, empty shop and the whistling gas jet over his head. Why, it sounds like a threat, Mr. Harding, he said gaily. The coffin merchant looked at him oddly and produced a printed form from his pocket. If you would just fill this up, he said. Eustace picked it up off the counter and laughed aloud. It was an order for a hundred-guinea funeral. I don't know what your game is, he said, but this has gone on long enough. Perhaps, Mr. Reynolds, said the coffin merchant, and he leant across the counter and looked Eustace straight in the face. For a moment Eustace was amused. Then he was suddenly afraid. I think it's time I... He began slowly. Then he was silent, his whole will intent on fighting the eyes of the coffin merchant. The song of the gas jet waned to a point in his ears and then rose steadily till it was like the beating of the whole world's heart. The eyes of the coffin merchant grew larger and larger till they blended in one great circle of fire. Then Eustace picked a pen off the counter and filled in the form. Thank you very much, Mr. Reynolds, said the coffin merchant, shaking hands with him politely. I can promise you every civility and dispatch. Good day, sir. Outside on the pavement, Eustace stood for a while trying to recall exactly what had happened. There was a slight scratch on his hand, and when he automatically touched it with his lips, it made them burn. The lit lamps in the Gray's Inn Road seemed to him a little unsteady, and the passers-by showed a disposition to blunder into him. Queer business! he said to himself dimly. I'd better have a cab. He reached home in a dream. It was nearly ten o'clock before the doctor remembered his promise and went upstairs to Eustace's flat. The outer door was half open, so he thought he was expected. And when he switched on the light in the little hall and shut the door behind him with the simplicity of habit, but when he swung round from the door, he gave a cry of astonishment. Eustace was lying asleep in a chair before him with his face flushed and drooping on his shoulder, and his breath hissing noisily through his parted lips. The doctor looked at him quizzically. If I didn't know you, my young friend, he remarked, I should say you were as drunk as a lord and he went up to Eustace and shook him by the shoulder, but Eustace did not wake. Queer, the doctor muttered, sniffing at Eustace's lips. 
He hasn't been drinking. You've been listening to The Coffin Merchant by Richard Middleton. I'm so glad you could join me for this story. I hope all of your dilemmas are solved by the discovery of an enlightened solution. I've enjoyed being with you and hope to be with you again soon. Please be well and thank you for listening to me.